Well, I'm starting a new series today, and it's simply called this, Jesus Said What? Now I want you to say what with me like that. What? Yeah, it's kind of like looking at the Bible and saying, well, he wrote that, that was written 2,000 years ago, at least portions of the New Testament, and that has relevance for me today. Well, let me tell you, friends, it absolutely does. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was on the side of a mountain. He preached a sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, called the Sermon on the Mountain, or the Sermon on the Mount, and it has done more to shape the world than any other message the world has ever heard. Even Wikipedia says the Sermon on the Mount formed the moral borders of Western civilization. Let me say it again. The Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, shape the moral context or contours of our culture and society. If you look at America today and you say, what is happening in our nation? It's like our world is going in a ditch. It's like people don't know right from wrong. Well, friends, we've neglected the words of Christ, the foundation that our nation was built on. But I want to ask you this question. I want to, uh, in, in presenting the Bible to you, I do my best to make the words of the Bible written several thousand years ago relevant to our world today. And I want to ask you this question, who influences your thinking about modern issues in society? Let me give you a couple examples here of things that's going on around us. I don't know if you've seen this group or heard of them. They're called Antifa, short for uh, anti-fascism. But uh, they are, were picketing a church in Austin, Texas just a few weeks ago. And they were demanding that the church change its teaching on biblical marriage. They were demanding, this group of people basically showed up at the church with banners and signs and basically said, what you're doing is wrong, we don't like it, and if you don't stop teaching this way, we want you to leave Austin. How do you relate to that? What do you think about that? What if you, what if someone asked you to join the group? How would you make that decision? Are you rooted in biblical thought, or are we just carried along by posts on Facebook? How about this one? Uh, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, candidate for the Supreme Court, holding a constitution. Uh, that's, the, that's the court's job, by the way, not to run America, but their job is to rightly interpret the constitution. One of the senators didn't even know what the little book he had in his hand was. Don't you think that uh, uh, our senators need the wisdom of Christ? Don't you think we need men and women on our Supreme Court and justices throughout America that would have the wisdom of the Bible to guide their decisions? Sure we do. How about this one? This is a big one. Uh, you know who that is? That's Colin Kaepernick. He's the guy that started the uh, kneeling at uh, NFL football games. Uh, and Nike picked him up. He is, he is a lead voice in their campaign. Just do it. Believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. This is so controversial in our culture. If I said anything about this today, I guarantee I'd offend somebody. So here's my question again. Where do we go to to shape our thinking about what's right and wrong in culture? Where do we go to to know how to behave and how to respond? I want to suggest to you the Sermon on the Mount is as good as anything in all of the Scripture. Clearly the whole Bible is the inspired Word of God, but it is the words of Christ that, uh, that, uh, that, that should shape the way we think. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us how to live a life that pleases God. Now, this morning, uh, I, I, well, it, actually, he taught in this whole Sermon on the Mount. It's going to take us eight weeks as we go through it. We'll look at it verse by verse. But we'll learn about anger. Uh, we'll learn about murder. We'll learn about lust, divorce, 
keeping our word, getting even, loving our enemies, giving prayer, forgiveness, money, judging, the golden rule. I mean, it's kind of a God book for living. If you want to synthesize the Bible and the teachings of Christ, here's where I suggest we go. And I've called this message uh, today, The Virtues of a Blessed Life. The word virtue, it means our morality. It means the choices that we make. And simply stated, when we're talking about, uh, in this message, the virtue of a blessed life, I'm talking about how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. So we're going to begin this message today, uh, you could say it this way, not just the virtues of a blessed life, but living a life that makes God smile. Uh, Jesus used the word blessed eight different times. Uh, It's called the Beatitudes. And uh, this is the pattern or the way to find a blessed life. But we're not quite sure what that word means. And before I get into the teaching, I want to pause on that just a moment. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus, now on the side of this great mountain, he saw great crowds of people, thousands of people. He goes up on a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth, mouth and he taught them. The first thing he said in this great sermon was blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you'll see in eight different occasions, he'll use the word blessed, and he'll tell you what behavior is blessed or what makes God smile. He'll talk about a specific virtue in our life or behavior, and then he'll talk about the results of that behavior. In this case, that uh, the poor in spirit, would, uh, would, uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's also going to talk about not only poor in spirit, but blessed are those who mourn. We'll figure out what that means. The meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And then Jesus even has the audacity to say, blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness. So I want to begin with this word blessed because blessed, it's used in many ways in the Bible. For example, we bless the Lord in our worship. You know the scripture that says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, let's say you had something really great happen to you. Let's say you, you got a big raise at work or you had a big sale and you told your wife or your friends or you put on Facebook, God bless me today. I got, a, I, I got a new job. Well, it's a proper thing for us to recognize the good things in life is from the hand of God. Those are blessings from God, but that's not what he's talking about here. When he uses the word here in, in, in a very simple way, if I could say it like this, When Jesus says, blessed are those, he's talking about people who act in ways that please God. Or I'm going to say it this way, who act in ways that make God smile. When I think of the word blessed, one of the nuances of blessing is the word happy. But this is not really happiness. When we think of happiness, we think of, you know, going to the beach and, uh, you know, sitting by the beach and having fun and and drinking uh, Shirley Temple. Or whatever. But, 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 but that's fun. That's happiness. We think of happiness of hitting a home run and you won the game or getting a limited ducks or whatever the case is. Well, these are very personal things. It's accomplishments, a pleasure, it's material things. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about you and I doing things in our lives, sets of behavior, reactions to circumstances that literally put a smile on the face of God. And if I could illustrate it this way, because God is our father, we're his child. I've had three kids, and they've done things throughout their life that made their dad smile. 
uh, my son, when he was playing soccer, and, and I never forget this, in the 12th grade, he was a great soccer player, and uh, uh, he wasn't just great because dad says so, the stats said so. He was a really great ball player. But I remember one time he was dribbling the ball, and he was going to the goal, and I just loved to see him. He could shoot from all over the field. But there was a boy that had a slight handicap on the team, and he would drag his foot a little bit. So obviously he's not the best ball player. I remember one time when John kicked the ball to him and let him shoot the goal. That put a smile on my face. This is what we're talking about. Doing things that make our father smile. Bethany, when she was married, uh, she had the testimony that she was a virgin when she married. Bethany was a beautiful girl. She did, you know, all the things that kids do, cheerleader, had fun and everything. But she made a choice to keep herself pure until she married. And guess what happened? It made Dad smile. See, she was blessed in what she did. She made me smile, and my favor was on her life. Rebecca, my, my youngest, uh, she's away at college now, so I have, I have a, a, an empty nest except for two cats, a dog, and a wife. But when she graduated, you know, kids, they put things on their, on their hat, on the graduation cap, and I took a picture with her, and here's what she put on hers. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and quotes Jeremiah chapter 29. Well, I didn't buy that hat for her and said, you're the preacher's daughter, you're going to wear this. She did it because something in her heart made her respond in a way. Well, guess what it did? It put a smile on my face. So these eight things that I'm going to look at for you today are ways that you and I can behave in life that cause God to smile on us, uh, and we have the favor of God. So let's, uh, let's begin this first one. Uh, we're going to begin the first one in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what in the world does that mean? Blessed people recognize their need for God. Poor in spirit does not talk about how much money you have. But poor in spirit is simply this, is that we live each day of our life recognizing our need for God. This word poor in spirit means that we consciously depend on God for everything. Uh, literally, all I have, all I am, and all I can do is because of Christ. Well, how many know it's easy to say that, but to live with that consciousness in life? The Bible tells us in Acts 17, it's by Christ's power that we live and move and exist or we have our being. In other words, everything in my life is because of God. Now, if you're healthy, if you have money or wealth in your life, if you're successful, if you're influential, if you've got a measure of power, I don't care if it's on the sports team or, or if it's the president of the bank or, or whatever you do, but if your life, you're kind of in control, you're not aware of your need for God. And if everything's going great in your life, you're, you, you can live your life without a sense of, I need God. But my friend, sooner or later, you're going to face a wall. My biggest wall I ever faced after Linnell's cancer, I had kind of a meltdown with anxiety and uh, I, I, I couldn't function. I didn't know if I would ever stand in the pulpit again. And that is so fresh on my mind. It was three years ago that every time before I come to this pulpit, I get on my knees and I say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. And I say, Lord, it's in you. I live and move and have my being. It is a recognition, and sometimes it takes a crisis to get there. And if you hadn't had that yet, I'll tell you, friend, one day when you go through the portal of the valley of shadow of death, how many know we'll realize that at that point, I cannot live without God. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, a second nuance is, is this, this poor in spirit. It means we're spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. We cannot save ourselves and we cannot earn righteousness. We need a Savior. See, this is the starting point for a Christian is to recognize 
our need for God. Come on, give him a good hand today. It is the first beatitude, the first state of blessedness is to live our lives in such a way that we recognize our need for Christ. Here's the second one, blessed people. Uh, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn or grieve, for they shall be comforted. I've got to be honest with you, I, I, I've been a preacher 40 years, and it took me more time on this message than any other message I've ever prepared because I didn't really understand what he was talking about. I mean, clearly in the Bible, when we talk about grieving and mourning, clearly God is our comforter. Even the Holy Spirit is called our comforter, and that's a benefit of being a Christian, but that's not what he's talking about here. I'm going to suggest to you that blessed people, what Jesus was talking about, are those that grieve over the actions of people that don't know Jesus. Now, stay with me on this. Where, where do I get this? This is not grieving for loss or death, but it's a sadness in our heart. It is a grief because of the wickedness, the oppression, or the spiritual condition of people around us. It is when I look at the news or when I see a, a, a situation or I, I see a story on Facebook and it grips my heart because of the brokenness of humanity. Here's uh, Luke chapter 19. You remember when Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem, the Bible says he drew near and he saw the city and what did he do? He He wept over that. He mourned over Jerusalem. And if you read it further, the city's going to be judged. And Jesus said, I wish you knew today what would bring you peace. But because of this, you didn't recognize the time when God came to save you. In other words, Jerusalem was going to reject Christ and crucify him. But Jesus wept over them. He mourned because of their spiritual condition. Let me show you an illustration of something that stuck with me the last few days. This is an actress. Her name is called Amy uh, Brenneman. She was in a TV show, A Private Practice. A beautiful woman. What caught my attention, though, was, of course, you see a lot of this today with the uh, appointment of Judge Kavanaugh, and, 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 and it's like secular America that advocates for abortion is doing everything in their power to stop his, uh, stop his, uh, uh, his vote in the Senate. A biblical view of life is simply this. The psalmist said, when I was in the womb, God knit me together. It, it's not a product of conception. It's not fetal material, but it's a human being. Uh, when, when, when John the Baptist, the Bible says he leaped in his mother's womb. He was a person. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah, the Bible teaches us that, that it says, God said, I knew you before you were born. I called you to be a prophet. So from a biblical perspective, God is the author of life. And life has value, life has worth. Whether it's a child in the womb or whether it's grandma in the nursing home that has dementia and doesn't even know who anyone is. We're created as human beings. We're different from animals, we're different from anything else because we bear the fingerprint of God. But here's what made me grieve. She tweeted, I have never, not once, regretted aborting my baby. I don't understand it. And you said, well, you're not a woman, you couldn't, okay. Well, it takes two to have a baby. Men are affected by this too. But I, I share this with you because here's what I hope happens in my life. Rather than I just tweet back and say, you're an evil, wicked person. What if I just took a moment and prayed for her because my heart breaks because of what she doesn't understand? 
all the insanity we see around our nation today is because people don't understand the love of God. God has not revealed himself and they don't yet know him. Well, this is what I think the Bible's talking about when we mourn. We mourn as God does over the brokenness of our culture. Uh, here's another nuance, a possible interpretation of this morning. Uh, followers of Christ are grieved when we do wrong. One of the greatest gifts you have is guilt. Because guilt is not only your conscience, but guilt could be the Holy Spirit telling you that the path you're taking is a wrong path. You can harden your heart to it or you can say yes to God and get back on his path. But guilt is a gift from God to keep us from going over the edge. But we live in our society that many people, for example, uh, in, in a lot of the sexual aberrations in our culture today that are outside of, a, of, of biblical normalcy, uh, they say, people, you, Christians, you make me feel guilty when you tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Well, listen, we don't want to beat people up, but that guilt is a gift from God. It's God saying that your actions are wrong. Well, we should grieve on our own personal sin, not just the sin of other people, but I should grieve when I sin. If I get to the place when I sin and it doesn't bother me any longer, it's dangerous because I'm hardening my heart to God. But, but here's what I grieve. We don't just stay in grief as a Christian. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's where the comfort comes in, that no matter what I've done wrong, I can bring my sin to the cross. I, I won't go into detail, but I carried a particular sin that I thought was just horrible for 20 years of my life and never told a soul. And I was a Christian those 20 years. But how many know even those sins can be brought to Christ? And even know when we mourn, we can find laughter on the other side when God frees us, come on, from our guilt and shame. Give him a big hand today. Here's number three. There's eight. Blessed people are humble. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is probably not you're going to, we're going to inherit the earth as Christians next year or in the future. It's probably an eternal picture there, new heaven and new earth. But this word meek, very hard to understand. We don't use this word in our modern culture. But meek by definition means to be humble and gentle. It is not proud. It is not self-sufficient. It's not self-focused. It doesn't aggressively demand our rights. Again, still a little opaque, hard to understand. Let, let me illustrate this for you about a person who is meek. Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said, Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So Jesus Christ said, I'm meek. And in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you who are meek. So what do meek people do? If Jesus was a meek person, let me tell you what. First of all, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not a doormat. As a Christian, you can be strong. You can be a person of conviction. Jesus, listen, without question, was a confrontational man of authority. Jesus had strength. He had power. But yet he was still meek. Because meekness is in our actions. Jesus served others instead of demanding they serve him. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Jesus honored people of low social status. These are actions of humility. He did miracles, but he didn't want anybody to take, give him credit. He'd sacrifice for others in the name of God. This is what Jesus meant when uh, you're going to be blessed if you're meek because God's smiling when we adorn ourselves. Come on, when we take on the image of Christ and do what he did. Come on, give him a good, a good hand today. Let me give you another one. Verse 6, this is kind of a, uh, strange in some way. It's hard to figure out. 
But Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be what? Satisfied. In other words, if you're living a godly, a holy, a pure life, you're going you're gonna to feel good about yourself and God's going to feel good about you. But this idea of hungry and thirsting, maybe I can convey it this way. How many uh, played football when you were in high school? Let me see your hand here. Come on, football. Some of you wouldn't raise your hand if I offered you a $20 bill. I mean, but anyway, most, a, lot of, a lot of the guys, it was a guy thing. And, and uh, I rode past, I live in Redwater, and I rode past the high school the other day, and these kids are out there in the middle of 90-something degree weather, hot as it can be. I've got something cold to drink in the car. The air conditioner in my truck, truck is on fully low. And I'm thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not out there. But I could remember, it made me think, when I was in the 10th, 11th, 12th grade, and at the end of practice, after you're already tired, you had to run wind sprints. And on the sidelines now is this big keg of water or Gatorade. And you're just getting on the line, and the coach blows the whistle, you know, beep, and you run down there, and you're, you're, and then he, beep, and you run some more. Well, you're thirsty. Now, what Jesus is saying is you can be thirsty for God. And it's a desire that God wants to fulfill. Listen to the words of the psalmist. Psalm 42, this is written. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams. Think a little Bambi and the dogs are chasing little Bambi through the woods and her tongue is hanging out. That's the best joke I had today and it just went right over your head. All right. Anyway, Bambi is thirsty. She's running from the dogs for her life. But notice what the psalmist said. My soul pants for See, Christianity is more than just doing rules and doing religious things. Christianity is first and foremost a personal relationship with God. Jesus said, I've called you friends. He's not your high five buddy, but he wants to know you. He wants to be a loving father that you and I spend time with every day that we get to know him. David went on to say, my soul thirsts for God. So here's what I know from personal experience in my life and in the lives of others. The Bible uses different terms to describe our spiritual temperature. We can be hot, cold, or, or lukewarm. Uh, I, I thought about bringing a meat probe with me uh, to test somebody, uh, see what your temperature was. Uh, just a little funny story here. Uh, Rebecca came home from college, uh, and it was kind of last-minute Memorial Day, and we were thrilled that she was coming home, and uh, Linnell, her love language is serving, so she said, what do you want to eat, Rebecca? And now listen, I don't care what that child would have said. If she'd have said it, I'd have gone and bought it. Uh, I was in Sam's the other day, and I saw this king crab leg, and it was about that long, and I mean, it, I don't remember what it was, like $100 or $90 or something. I'd have bought that. Because I love my daughter that much. But fortunately, she wanted a steak, and that was just about as expensive. Are you with me today? But I asked them, you know, how do you want to cook it? They all said medium. We Googled what the temperature on medium, and I put that probe in there. And when it hit whatever it was, 140, 145 degrees, we took it out, and I was the chef of the day. Are you, are you with me? Well, listen, we have a spiritual temperature. And here's the problem. I don't know how to tell you how to make yourself hungry and thirsty. But I can tell you this. If you're hungry, you can fill yourself up with Dr. Pepper and potato chips. I went hunting with some friends recently, and, and someone, uh, 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 the wife had cooked a chocolate cake, and it was primo chocolate cake, and it was big. In the middle of the night, one of my, I won't call his name, but in the middle of the night, my buddy got up and ate him some chocolate cake, and guess what he was eating for breakfast? Yeah, you know, his wife's out of there, so he's just going for it. You can fill up on stuff like that, but you won't be healthy. 
you can fill yourself up with the wrong thing. Now, here's where I'm going on this about hungering and thirsting for God. If you're too full of Facebook and hobbies and Instagram and even work, these are not sinful things, but if you're just full of the things of the world, there's not room for you to be hungry for God. You cannot get up all day. You cannot get up and get, to, you know, get up at 6 and be at work at 6.30 or 7 and, and go hard all day and you know, just eat a quick sandwich at lunch and then come home and watch TV and go to the ball game and lay in bed at 10.30 and expect you to have a strong relationship with God. Amen. You've got to give God place where you can be with Him reading the Bible and prayer and serving the Lord. And if you'll get rid of some of the junk food of life, I bet you'll be hungry. Punch your neighbor and say, that's pretty good. All right, let's keep going here. Number five, we've got eight. Blessed people show mercy to people who don't deserve it. Now, I guarantee you this makes God smile. Verse seven says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, here's what I know. When, when I do someone wrong, you know what I want? Mercy. I want to be forgiven and I want a fresh start. But when you do me wrong, you know what I want for you? Judgment. I want you to get what you deserve, but I want to get free in mercy. Let me read you a story here. The definition of mercy. Mercy simply means to be kind towards people who do us wrong. It means to treat an offender better than they deserve. It means to be more apt to forgive rather than demand justice. And when I was studying the definition of this word, I found something very interesting. One of the translators says, there's no word in English that adequately describes this Greek word for mercy. The closest word we have to it is the word grace. And then he said this, mercy is a distinguishing attribute of God. In other words, when I treat people better than they deserve, not because I'm afraid of them, not because I want something from them, but I'm simply motivated by the kindness of God, the same kindness that I received on the cross, then God smiles. Let me read a parable. Jesus told this parable. It's a king that represents God, and it's two servants that represent fellow believers. Well, one of the servants, he was a debtor. He'd borrowed money. He owed the king millions of dollars. This is like our sins before God. Well, the man fell down and begged him and said, please be patient. I'll pay it all. The master was filled with pity. This is the language of mercy. Filled with pity, and he released him and forgave his debt. I want to ask you a question. How many know could you could list every person that owes you $10 or more on your hand right now? Most all of us could. I had someone borrow $1,500 from me, and I think it was uh, uh, 15 years, 9 months, uh, 11 days, 6 hours, and 3 minutes. I'm kidding, but I'm half serious. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to collect your debts, but what I'm saying is it's like we hold on to things against people. But yet when we get in trouble, we want mercy well, this man that was forgiven all this money, verse 28, he goes to his fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He owed millions, forgiven, few thousand. He demanded instant payment. By the way, he took Visa, MasterCard, and Apple Pay, so it could have been a way for him to make it. But he didn't. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell down, and he begged for a little more time. This is people who sin against us, people who do us wrong. But he had the man put in prison. Then the king called both of them in. He called in the man who had forgiven much, and he said, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. I want you to say this last part with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? 
Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And when you show God's kindness to someone, whether it's a, a, an ex-spouse, an ex-boss, an ex-friend, Christian, whatever they may be, but when you show kindness to someone that's done you wrong and hurt you, you make God smile. Come on, give him a big hand today. Let's look at another one. Uh, blessed people, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Now we're talking about purity, pure in heart. This doesn't mean that we're perfect. But it means that our hearts have this connectedness with God. They're going to see God. That doesn't mean that you're going to have a visual manifestation of God, but likely it refers to God's presence is going to become more real. But listen to how one translator says that. He said, people who are pure in heart are completely devoted to serving God. And this doesn't mean that we're perfect. How many know David's an interesting character? Do you know how the New Testament describes King David? He's a, a man after God's own heart. But you know how I remember David? His adulterous affair with Bathsheba, he murdered his best friend. So how could the New Testament call him a man after God's own heart? See, there's something about, we make choices that are foolish and wrong, but in our heart, we desperately want to serve the Lord. And if our heart is like that, this is what the pure in heart means. And I want to illustrate this just a second here. I need a volunteer. Thank you, Steve. Come on up here. Uh, now, Steve, Steve has been running in, in two a days and he's tired. Don't smile. Tired people are. And he wants something to drink. I have some pond water here. Now we're talking about purity. There's a little stirring stick there for talking about purity. And Steve is thirsty. This came out of the tap. It's been filtered. Things have been done to this water that made it pure. Steve is so thirsty he can't stand it. Steve, have a drink. How about that one? And why do you want this one? Because it's clear and pure. Not that one. It's clean and pure. Is it just possible that when God looks at us, we're clean and pure or we're polluted by the world? Now listen, he loves us. See, you don't have to be perfect to be a Christian. Thanks, Steve. But the love of God loves us, come on, in the midst of our dirtiness. But as we walk with the Lord, come on, purity is what makes him smile. And this is what Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me give you another one, uh, verse, four, uh, verse uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. And don't read any gender into that. They're children of God peacemakers. So blessed people help people get along. So this beatitude is teaching us that when we see a peacemaker by definition is someone who actively works to bring peace and reconciliation where there's hatred and envy. I'm almost ashamed today at the state of racial hostility in America. I tell you one of the things that makes me so proud to be a part of this local church is that this is a diverse church. There's not just white or there's not just black, come on, but we reflect our community. We reflect different nationalities and people across the board. Well, why is that? Because this is a place of peace. This is a place where people are loved and accepted for who they are. They're not a member of the, uh, an African-American race or Hispanic race or an Oriental race or Caucasian. They're a member of the human race. 
Well, listen, I think the church un, uh, 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 better, or Christians better than anyone else in America can do something about the racial problems. It's almost like our politicians deliberately use racial differences to divide us in America, to get votes and, and, and all that. It's like everything is stirred up because of race. I don't care what you say, someone is going to say it's racist or it's hostile. When I think about being a peacemaker, a, a, a movie comes to mind. Uh, my favorite Denzel Washington movie, uh, Remember the Titans. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. It was a great movie. But it was about a football team in the 60s in Virginia in integration. And, of course, back then you had the white high school that had the white coach, and you had a black high school that had the black coach. Well, the, the, the state forced the schools to be integrated. Well, I mean, no, you can be sitting in the same room with somebody of a different skin color and still hate them. See, this is all the government can do when they force, I don't, whatever it is, integration, affirmative action, whatever. They can force us to be together, but they can't force us to love each other. But this is what Christians do. Well, in this movie, you saw, you know, first of all, the white coach, you know, he was replaced. He was going to be the assistant, and the black coach was going to be the head coach, and, and he wasn't going to be on the team. And, but then he decided, you know what, I, I am going to step towards this, not step away from it. His team joined, and they went off to camp, and they were like a white team and a black team. They wouldn't ride the same bus. They wouldn't sit in the same room. The coach made them share a bus together, made them share rooms together, different color skins. But th th one of the biggest fights occurred from a black guy and a white guy in the same room because they hated each other. But then in the movie, the crux of the movie was there was a t uh, two defensive ends, one white, one black. And one defining moment in the movie when, when one of them made a step towards the other, and rather than criticizing him, reached out to him with acceptance. Because as the movie developed, you saw the coaches doing the same thing, each standing for issues as they saw them, but choosing to let unity be a higher factor that brings us together. And one of the most defining marks of that movie, I think it was the, it was the last game of the season, unbeknownst to the black coach is the board that hired him was going to fire him the moment he lost the team, and they were going to put the white guy back in. Well, the white guy is the assistant coach coaching defense, and he realizes what the referees are doing. And then what he does is he sacrifices his future for something that was correct and right. And he went up to the referee and says, I know what you're doing. If you keep on doing it, I'm going to report you to the authorities. And just like that, he lost everything. He lost the Hall of Fame. He lost, he lost uh, you know, to be the head coach next year. But what he did is he chose to be a peacemaker instead of someone that was fostering hostility. And I want to suggest to you that you and I as believers in the body of Christ can be light and salt in a world that a politician can never be. Come on. We are the body of Christ, and Jesus has called us to be peacemakers. Number eight, uh, here's verse 10, uh, and this is the last one. Blessed people are, will be persecuted because they love Jesus. I don't like this one. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is why the message was so confusing to me, because I thought the word blessed meant happy. You're not happy when you're persecuted. You're not happy when you mourn. But this blessedness is your right response. You're following Christ even when there's a price to pay. Rejection from culture makes God smile. See, God's not into your suffering. God's not into your pain. I truly believe that it hurts the heart of God deeply when Christians around the world, the most persecuted group in the world, by the way, 
Christians are losing their lives. I can direct you to several news sites that are my favorites today that, uh, that report persecution around the world today. When God sees it, he knows it's the result of Adam's sin. He allows it, but it breaks the heart of God when his people are suffering. But listen to what Jesus said to fully understand this. John 15, the words of Christ. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember it. This is another political word today that, that anybody that, di that disagrees with whatever happens to be politically correct or said you hate people. Well, it's almost like they've taken a word out of its context. But in this particular case is reality. Jesus said the world is going to hate you because it hated me. Not because you've done anything wrong, simply because you identify with Christ. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you're no longer a part of the world. Uh, my, my wife lived as a Christian all her life. Me, I was as wild as the day is long when a few couple years in high school. I had this big old Afro, Afro hairdo, and I had things hidden in it at parties that you could smoke, and it was, there was always beer in the trunk. You understand, I was just like you. Come on, you holy Joe. But I got saved in the Navy, and I fell in love with Jesus. Amen. And I went back to a party. Now, forget that my hair was short. I still had on the fancy bell bottoms and what was cool back then. But I went in the party, and they started passing the beer around out of the keg, and I said, I'll have a Coke. And at that moment, what I thought were my hundreds of friends that were there turned into a few friends and a lot of acquaintances because I didn't love the world the way they did. And when it became clear, I didn't hold up a sign and says, I hate non-Christians. I just simply tried my best to live for Jesus. And the world says, we don't want anything to do with you. Jesus smiled over my life. Jesus said, I chose you out of the world. It's going to hate you. And I hate to tell you this, friends, but not everybody's going to be excited if you love Jesus and live for him. They'll snicker at you if you pray over a meal. Friends will leave you. Christians have been fired from their jobs when they, on their own time, posted on Facebook that they believe marriage was between a man and a woman. Not in a hostile way, not in a demeaning, self-righteous way, but simply trying to say, God has a better way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Come on now. And they simply tried to say it's true. Well, listen, if that happens to you, you're not going to be happy. There'll be a cost to pay. But because you're willing to suffer or sacrifice for the name of Christ, your heavenly Father is smiling, just like this dad did when my son passed that ball to that little handicapped boy and let him make the shot of the day. Come on, give the Lord a good hand today. He's worthy of praise. Stand to your feet with me today, and Lord willing, we're going to continue this for the next few weeks about the greatest sermon ever preached to how to live your life today. Again, when I'm teaching you about the blessed life today, it's about how to live in a way that makes God smile. But look at me just a second. You have to decide if you want that smile. I want to close with this picture. Back to where we began, Antifa, anti-fascist. Seems kind of an anomaly there to call yourself that with a stick in your hand. But what if they showed up at our church? What would the Bible direct us to do? I wonder if the Beatitudes would apply Jesus said followers of Christ are blessed when we recognize our need for God. Let me tell you what his number one problem is. He needs God and he doesn't know it. He needs truth and he's in darkness. 
What he needs is someone to bring forth the love of God to him, not fight him with another stick. That's where the heart of the problem is today. That's where the heart of the problem of all the issues of people doing crazy things all around you, in your family, at your work, in our city, in America, it's because they don't have Christ. I can start there praying for them. How about this number two, mourn? Now, there's a bunch of us in this room that would like to tell that guy right there, bring it on. But I hope when I look at him, I hope I feel for him what I felt for the lady that said, I've never regretted killing my, aborting my baby. I hope I can mourn over his soul, just like Jesus did when he wept over Jerusalem. The meek, meek or not weak. If they were to come in the back of the sanctuary, as has happened in churches across America, if they were to come in trying to throw a big hoop eye in church, I would say, I'm so glad you're here. Someone get them a donut and a cup of coffee. You're welcome to be here, but you're not welcome to destroy this church. Meekness doesn't mean, okay, you go ahead and you throw stuff and we'll be quiet just to make you happy. No, meekness stands tall, but it responds in a loving way, but it calls the sheriff if they don't behave. Are you with me? Meekness doesn't mean that you cannot stand upon what's not only right and true, but our civil laws in our society today. Christians need to have a backbone. The meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, they don't have it. M merciful. I don't know if I shared this in this service or not, but I carried a sin on my shoulders for 20 years as a Christian that I committed 20 years earlier. And I never told a soul because I felt it was so bad. And I didn't know that God's mercy could come and cover that sin. Can I tell you, friends, you know what these folks need? They need the mercy of God. They need what you need and what I need when I was running from God. They need somebody to show mercy. Pure in heart, I need the evidence. And how about that word, being a peacemaker? Somehow, some way, with all the hostility in our nation, we can be peacemakers. Persecuted for righteousness sake, that church didn't do anything wrong. They didn't have signs up that said we hate gays. They simply made a declaration that said, we believe the Bible is God's word and marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not hate speech, it's truth. Listen, you speak the truth in love. You love people, but if I truly love you, I'll tell you the truth. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord today. Jesus is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. I want you to bow your head just a second and I want you to just have a private moment with God. And I wonder if, before you leave this place, what has the Holy Spirit put His finger on you today? Is there something that, in the message that came up, and the Lord's saying, I want you to make a change? Are you that believer that's on the couch, and God wants in the game? I don't know what it may be, but I want to encourage you to say yes to the Lord. Don't just be a hearer of the Word of God. Resolve in your heart, I'm going to be a doer. And today for all of us, Lord, I believe in all of our hearts, we want to live in a way that makes you smile. I want you to look down on me as a born-again man, as your son, and I want you to smile at the choices that I'm making, the virtues that I build my life on. And this is what it means to be blessed by God. Welcome today. Hey, let's close this way. We're going to have one last song, and I want to ask you, unless there's an emergency, just hang on to that song's over. 
we're going to invite our prayer team down to the front and uh, we'll pray about anything that you might need prayer for no time constraint here if you need to talk to someone you've got some big problems need out in the world i can't think of a better place to let a spiritual person pray for you but the most important prayer we'd like to pray for you friend is about your personal relationship with christ here's a question i want to ask you that could not be more serious but if you were to die today are you 100 percent sure you'd go to heaven there's no question more serious I look in the mirror and, I, and I, I wonder, who is that old man? I'm looking at my grandfather. Because life just goes by. One day, friend, your life will be over on this earth. And the Bible says it's appointed a man once to die and then judgment day. I want to ask you if you're 100% sure that you're right with God. Have you received Christ as your Savior? And let me maybe explain this to you this way. I was raised in church and ch going to church is a good thing, but going to church won't get you to heaven. Here's what happened to the human race. And if that cross is just a symbol now, but if it represents God, Adam and Eve had relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. But one day Satan turned their head and they were tempted and they sinned against God. And the Bible says every human being since Adam and Eve has been walking away from God. I don't care if you're running, at, running after the devil like I was or walking after him like my wife was. Every one of us will come to a place where we become aware of our need for God. That's the poor in spirit. And we're aware that our life is short, it's brief. We become convicted of our sins. We become convicted that we need a Savior. And to be a Christian means you look at the God's invitation to follow Him. You look at the world that you were following and you make a choice. You either keep going away from God or you, this is, the Bible calls this repenting. Turning from your past and beginning to follow God. Kneeling as it were at the cross, asking God to forgive you from your sins. Receiving Christ as your Savior and following Him. It's a defining moment in life, friends. The Bible calls it being born again, where Christ comes into your life and gives you a brand new start. And if you're here today and you feel like I'm talking to you, like you and I are the only two people in the room, that's the Holy Spirit dealing with you, encouraging you to make a step to Christ. And if that's you right now, I'm going to encourage you when they begin to sing, just slip out of your chair. Someone will meet you at the cross and pray with you as you make the greatest decision of your life. Go ahead and begin to sing. Zach, our prayer team is coming to the front right now. Prayer team, come on up here. They're here to pray for you about anything you have need of. But most importantly, if you need to get your life right with God, don't let anything stand in the way. We'll see you at the cross. I love you and God bless you.